So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And here is what's coming up today. I know of parents who've had uh, dwarf children who people have said to them, oh, at least they'll always make money in entertainment. They'll never be poor at Christmas time. It's panto season. Oh, yes, it is. But is it time to kill the seven dwarfs? I meet the campaigner who says time's up for Snow White. Plus... Something else that they might want to explore is the use of erotic hypnosis. Alex Fox on the highly contentious fantasy of dubious consent and Ollie Peart gambles, literally, on a Christmas number one. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, time for your letters. Uh, lots of reaction to our interview with Martin last week. Uh, Claire says, Ollie, thank you so much for selecting Samuel's charity to support with the Christmas single. I am so pleased you've shone a light on childhood cancer. Our son Noah passed away at the age of four and a half, and I felt every ounce of Martin's interview. Uh, Thank you so much for your amazing and varied podcast. Uh, Claire, thank you. I'm so sorry to hear about that experience, but it is so lovely when people with uh, directly correlating experiences to the ones we're portraying on the show get in touch and compliment us and say we're doing it right. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Ditto John Paul, who's been in touch to say, Ollie, I've been listening ever since you started the podcast in 20. 2015. I've often been moved by the stories you cover. Martin's story, though, hit me particularly hard as my daughter spent a long time in hospital when she was born due to renal failure. I could associate with so much of what Martin said. Fortunately, my daughter is fine now, albeit with partial kidney function. But hospitals, parents and kids rely so much on charities like Samuel's Charity. In fact, my wife and I spoke frequently about how amazing it would be to be able to raise enough to pay for an Accuvain. Now, remember, man fans, this is the device that Martin said we need to raise four grand to buy. That is the achievable, ambitious target for our Christmas single, £4,000. But despite our best intentions, continues John Paul, we never did anything about it. Your podcast was the kick up the arse I needed. I will give 250 quid to get you started. Uh, if it helps for me to buy 250 copies of Sounds of Christmas, I will. Otherwise, I'll just make a donation direct to Samuel's charity. Let me know and good luck in the charts. Uh, John Paul, that is amazingly generous of you, first of all. Thank you so much. Secondly, please do not buy 250 copies of the record. (laughs) That is insane, and Apple really don't need the commission. What I suggest you do is make a donation directly. Uh, You can do that at samuelscharity.co.uk. But please do buy one copy of the record, uh, and that goes for all of you listening as well. Song comes out on Friday. Every single sold will make it more likely that other people will hear the song and buy the song and support the charity and get us into the Christmas charts. So even if you do send a donation through to Samuel's charity, please do buy the song as well. Uh, Much more of this to come on today's show. You're going to hear the song. Uh, Briefly, though, before we proceed any further with today's episode, big thanks to our sponsors, beer52.com. Now, if you're a regular listener, you will already know that they are the UK's number one beer club. They deliver... Frankly, astonishing craft beer directly to your very door. What you might not know is that the boxes are often delightfully themed. So, for example, the one that I got this month is the Flavours of Southwest England. So there's a great brewery in there from Somerset called the Wild Beer Co. Really lovely stuff. There's a smoky one, there's an IPA, there's a chocolate and coffee porter. Uh, Seriously, this is a lovely way to find your new favourite beer. And remember, just for listening to this show, you, yes you, can get a 
free box of eight beers. It really is a great deal. You get a magazine, you get a snack, and you get eight beers. It's worth 24 quid, totally free. All you have to pay is the 2.95 postage and packing. It is a trial case, so you know if you don't want the monthly membership afterwards, you can cancel. But it is genuinely eight beers for free. British listeners, get your free case now at beer52.com slash man. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash M-A-N-N. And thanks again to them. Right, in this episode, you will learn why you should never use the M word. You'll learn who Benjamin Lay was. And you'll learn how to emotionally blackmail Adam Buxton. Let's go. Right, the moment has come. It is time for the world premiere of The Sounds of Christmas. How are you, Ollie Pitt? I am excited. Are you psyched? I, I haven't felt this... You, you, you know that I'm, I'm doing up my house. Yeah. So it means that I don't have any Christmas decorations up anywhere because I can't, because what's the point? I'm going to put up a tree, put up some baubles, put up some tinsel. Okay, when you uh, get to Christmas number one, don't use this anecdote on the chart show, but carry on. I won't. But because of this, because of this song, I feel Christmassy. This song has been plaguing me in my sleep. I'm genuinely true. Like, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning singing this song. It is an earworm. It definitely gets into your brain. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. And it's not like I've been working on the song. I mean, I've heard it maybe six times. Well, I was humming it the other day, just picking up uh, my dog's poo. Yeah, and I've only heard it maybe less than that, possibly. What an image to give us as we're about to hear a charity single, Ollie. Picking up your dog's shit. Hey, it's got to be done. I'm doing people a favour. Kids can go blind if that doesn't get picked up. Now, last week you were very keen that you got a last-minute trumpeter. How did that go? Well, we got one. Matt Hinton. In fact... Quite you got Matt Hinton on trumpet? Matt Hinton. What, well, the Matt Hinton? The Matt Hinton. Matt Trumpety Hinton. Yeah. And he's just a man fan, got in touch, say, I play the trumpet, I'd love to play a part. Matt is actually a podcaster too. He's got right. a po- yeah, he's got a podcast called Angelcast. So you can go and check it out. What podcasters are in the final lineup? Can you reveal this now? I can. I can also reveal that the collective term for this group of podcasters is, of course, the Podcast All Stars. That's good because um, I guess legally Pod Aid was a bit problematic anyway. Yeah, because we'd have Bono over smashing our face in. And Podcast All Stars. It promises a lot. Who have you got? We've got The Modern Man, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Deborah Francis White from The Guilty Feminist. Oh, yeah. We've got Benjamin Partridge of the Beef and Dairy Dairy. Network podcast. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Martin from Answer Me This. I've heard of him. Imriel Morgan from Wannabe. Stuart Goldsmith of The Comedian's Comedian. And the uh, How to Be a Dad episodes of this podcast, of course. Craig Parkinson from Two Shot Podcast. Oh, that's um, the guy from Line of Duty. Yeah. He's, he listens to the show. He came up to me at the British Podcast Awards and he started talking to me all about the um, interview we did with Craig Jones, the wildlife photographer. Oh. Anyway. Do you, also, do you think he looks like Bradley Cooper? A little bit. Craig Jones, the wildlife photographer, or Craig Parkinson? No, Craig Parkinson. No. We've got Maeve McLenaghan from the Tip Off podcast, and we've got Danielle, Margaret, and Michael from Do the Right Thing. Have you? Daniel Ward's on it. Daniel Ward. Good. That's not a bad, very solid lineup. How'd you get all their voices on the track? For Do the Right Thing, producer Matt went along and they recorded it in their dressing room just before they did their live show. Uh, wow. So they were doing as a warm up for their show. They yeah. were singing The Sounds of Christmas. Brilliant warm up, isn't it? Okay. And um, for the rest of them, they just use their podcast setups. There's the advantage of using podcasters. They've already got microphones and recording equipment. So you just go, Oi, can you just, you know? And they do. They're not used to singing, though. This is Alex was very worried about this when we recorded her vocal last week. But Alex. Surprise me with her singing voice. Maybe she sings in the shower. We know what she gets up to in the shower, Ollie. She talked about it extensively on the show. Right, well, uh, I consider my appetite whetted. But before we hear the song, I should say we're not going to hear the whole song. No. We're going to hear one minute and 30 seconds of it. Yes. What's the thinking behind that? Well, firstly, we want people to go out and buy it. So if we play the whole thing, people just listen to the podcast over and over again, couldn't they? We don't want <laughs> A plausible scenario. We want them to go out. We want them to go out, spend the money. Yes. Buy the record because that's what counts, and that's going to make the difference for the charity. Yeah, and that, okay, that is important because it is for Samuel's charity. So remember, if you are someone who's thinking I want to support this song, don't just stream it online. I mean, feel free to play it on Spotify when it comes out, but realistically, the money's going to be made for the charity by you buying the song, right? Absolutely. And there is another reason: we are a free to download podcast. Mm-hmm. And trying to negotiate playing commercial music on a podcast is notoriously difficult because of all of the stakeholders involved for the publishing rights. Mm-hmm. So the publishing rights, I'm interested that you bring that up mm-hmm. because we've said that this money is going to charity, right? So the artist royalty is going to charity. Yes. I'm getting nothing. Yep. Publisher. Who's the publisher? The songwriters. <laughs> Are you one of the songwriters officially? <laughs> yes. 
What's your stake? 20%. You got 20% of the publishing rights. Cha-ching. Okay, what does that actually equate to then? So the publishers get... So it's you and, and Philip Mark who actually wrote the song. Yeah. Right. What, get, what's your stake? We get 9.6 cents right. for every sale. Yeah, what do I, you get? And I get 20% of that, which is 1.6. You do the maths. I don't know. About, about a cent or so. Okay, and presumably you're going to give all your share to charity, right? Well, I mean... You are going to give all your share to You're not, you're not asking, are well, you? Well, I'm insisting. Not asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it seems fair. It'd be a little bit harsh if I started buying new wood-burning stuff, which I could really do with, by the way, because <laughs> I'm moving house. It would look so nice. I don't know why we didn't do an emotional episode last week about how you really need wood-burning stove. Not for this, Ollie. It's time to hear the song. Okay, I'm ready. This is Podcast All-Stars with Sounds of Christmas, which is available to buy on Friday the 14th of December and it starts off with a couple of voices that will be familiar to listeners of this podcast so we've had an email from Sam who says I broke up with my girlfriend last Christmas now I can't face Christmas and I'm thinking about her all the time oh I hear about so many relationships at Christmas time that end up making just like the turkey and being completely stuffed get out of my lonely bed in the morning radio's on That sounds really good. It's great, isn't it? It is really it's good. So good. It, when, when we went when we went into this challenge, just think. No, you, you don't have to allow for me in this. I know I've claimed joint ownership, but this was you. Yeah. Don't say when we went into this challenge. I just read out an email. Yeah, but I mean, we're in it now. You're Bono. Yeah. No, well, actually, on that point, can I just? I'm not Bono, am I? Like, no. I wanted the big standout line. Well, you made yourself stand out in you that made, Yeah, because I can't sing. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you can clearly hear when it's me coming on. Yeah, of course you can. I'm distinct. God, I can't believe you made us do that. Uh, but uh, the um, uh, standout line is obviously the guy going, Inside my head! Who's yeah, that? That's Michael Legg from Do The Right Thing. Wow. It's good. It might have gone through Adrian a little bit, but... I don't want to put him down. It sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, there were a couple of voices on there that did sound a bit less human than that. Mm. But I, I presume that was for a good reason, as in the original take was not necessarily that strong. Speaking of which, I couldn't hear you in it at all. Where are you? Well, you know the bit where you know where you tried to make me pronounce stew properly? If yeah, you, so this is when we were recording this last week, and yeah. it was when you did the chorus, boil the chestnuts in, and when you say stew, you go stew, stew. in this very bizarre, chestnuts sort of like schoolboy choir stew. bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm, in, I'm not in the first chorus in the bit that we just played, I'm in the second chorus. Do you want to hear that bit? Well, you think I can pick out your voice in I the be- second chorus? You can hear, you'll hear me. Okay. Here it is. That's me. That's clearly you, yeah. Yeah. Because you sang straw. Yeah, but, that, you know, I just want to make sure people can hear me. Well, there oh, we go. Magic. Not going to play you on magic, mate. Good luck with that. Very limited playlist. Hey, well, they, they do well to play that kind of music. People at home are listening to this. Their cockles well and truly warmed. Right, for the millions of people out there that now want to go and buy this song and help us crack the Christmas Top 40, what do they need to do? Well, what we're going to do on Friday, when it's launched, if you follow us on Twitter, at The Modern Man, yeah. that's M-A-N-N, yeah. we're going to announce it on there. So the so, moment the song comes out and it's available to buy, yeah. we'll put an announcement on Twitter. Announcement on Twitter with a link where you can buy it and go and buy it. And we've also had the question from people overseas whether or not they can help. You can't help us get to Christmas number one, but by buying it, 
it's still going to charity. So still buy it. Please still buy it. If yes. you live in the States, if you live in Australia, down under, still buy it. Philip, who wrote the song, is from Australia, Ollie. Yeah, I know. That was me doing an impression of Philip. It was just inappropriate. I don't think it was. And I must say, I've heard, since we last recorded, I've heard a few news items about songs vying for Christmas number one. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of other charity ones that are shit. I actually genuinely think we've got a better chance than some of the ones I've seen featured on on the news. So I'd say as well, if you work at a radio station or a newspaper or a magazine or a website and you think you can promote our attempt to crack the Christmas Top 40, not only is it for a great charity, Samuel's Charity, it's actually genuinely a better song than some of the other ones that are out there. I'm sure raising money for very good causes, this is a better song. And also it'll improve our odds. Do you want to know what our odds are? Yes, please. 100 to 1. That's actually pretty good. I thought that was quite good. Well, you know, who they, who else are they it? ranking? We're in a list with Wham, Cheryl Cole, Nick Knowles, Robbie Williams, George Michael. Which I love that Nick Knowles Wham, is now part of that list. Andy Tate. Who's Andy Tate? Don't know. Yeah, I don't know that one. Georgia Burgess, Shan, and the Bedeal and Skinner, which we spoke about. Bedeal and Skinner's 200 to 1. We stand more chance than them to get into Christmas That's number That's amazing. One. Yeah, it is amazing. So we have better odds of being Christmas number 1 than a song that's been number 1 about four times before. Yep. That's actually a good fact, isn't it? It's all right. Stick you take that one to your grave, Ollie. I'm not, I'm, I'm, <laughs> for a brief moment. I'm not one for gambling. but that's You had a, more chance of being number one it's than the for, lightning seeds. It's worth it for a tenner. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Uh, so that's officially listed on Paddy Power now, is it's it? It's on Paddy Power. I got sent that by a, a, t- a Twitter fan. Okay, well, if you want to put a flutter on and we no way endorse gambling, then the song again, Sounds of Christmas by Podcast All Stars, although it would be better, of course, to spend that tenner on buying 10 copies of the single and giving the money to charity instead. I'm putting a shed load on it because I've lost my 20% to the charity, haven't I? So <laughs> I'm, I'm putting a good couple hundred quid on that. I'm not sure that I don't, again, like for Christmas number one, Ollie, I don't want to get your hopes up here. Like there's, um, the momentum's behind us. I'm pleased, you know, that you're doing, I'm just worried about what's going to happen. But for the record, yeah. that's a legitimate earning for me, isn't it? I don't have to give that to charity if we do get to number one, do I? You're not going to make me give my gambling winnings to charity, are you? You can't do that. I feel a bit guilty now that you're actually posing this very vulnerable (laughs) question to me. No, Ollie, I'm not going to take your gambling earnings away. Oh, thank the Lord. So how else are we going to try and crack the charts, Ollie? We're going to run an ad across a load of podcasts. Well, doesn't that cost us money? No. Why? Why not? (laughs) Well, because we're going to try and persuade Acast, who are the the network. We've we've spoken about Acast, millions of listeners. Yes. We're going to try and persuade them to run the ad for us for free. Oh, to insert an ad into other podcasts on the Acast network? Yeah, strategically placed Right. Them. So yeah. you're talking about strategical placing, but actually what you're doing right now is emotional blackmail, isn't it? So it you're, is. you're, this is, what you're saying now is directly aimed at the people who work for Acast. Yeah, and I'm going to try and emotionally blackmail you as well, because I want you to voice it. Oh, I feel like I'd be taking that away from you, Ollie. This is your project. Why do I get to step? Why does Billy, Billy Big Shits get to step in and do the voiceover at the last minute? You just heard me trying to sell it, going, oh, I might sell it. I'm not going to sell it. Your nice, beautiful, it's low true. dulcet tones yeah. will sell this beautiful Christmas number one. Is that one. your Ollie Man impression? I'm Ollie Man. It's literally like just a man in a pub doing David Attenborough. I think you should give it a bash as well. I've got the script here. Do you want to give it a go? I'll look at it, yeah. No, here we go. No, I'm not going to do it now. Yeah, do it. No, do it now. You've written me a script. Yes. Just read it. Radio 4, come on. (laughs) Do you want this? (laughs) Okay. This is Sounds of Christmas, the charity single featuring some of your favourite podcasters. And all I'm doing a smile in my voice, that's important. That, do you know what? I am melting inside. Can you do that again? I need it for the bath later. Or I can do it again, but it's £50 for a pickup. Sure. And all in aid of Samuel's charity, Sounds of Christmas. Buy it now. Get to the fast bit. Oh, there's a disclaimer. Yep. You could stream it a hundred times, but really it's easier to buy it because that helps us get into the charts and raise more money. Sounds of Christmas. Download it now. That's not fast enough. Right, okay. Try and do it fast enough. I'm not fast. I'm not really comfortable with you directing me whilst we're recording a segment on our show. Do one more time faster. Just do one more time faster. <sighs> okay. Like like it's a, like you're selling carpets. Okay, this is going to... Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get Ollie Man to sell your carpet. <laughs> I'm the voice of the no. NASA Europe cartoons, thank no, you. No, I don't mean that. I just mean, like, you know, the disclaimer when you buy a carpet. Jupiter, it's like, whirling and fierce. That's me. Yeah, it's just, like, it's just like, you know, don't expect it before Christmas Day, and it could also be a carcinogen. That kind of stuff. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll go one more time. You could stream it a hundred times, but really it's easier to buy it because that helps us get into the charts and raise more money. Sounds of Christmas. Download it now. See, you're really good at that. I've got a lot to learn, haven't I? Well, you said it. It's not just your beautiful ad that we're going to be running. Right. We're going to try and encourage other podcasters to talk about it in episodes, and we've already spoken to them. So we've got Griefcast, The High Low, and Adam Buxton Podcast. Oh, They're blimey. all going to do a shout-out for us to help promote the 
promote the song? Well, I think we're fully up to date now with everything to do with the single, but we should return to business as usual. Uh, This is usually the section of the show where people task you with the challenge, and we have not forgotten that, Ollie. Good! It is Christmas after all. (laughs) Here is your challenge for next week's show. It comes from Ailish, who says, I've been thinking about doing a DNA ancestry kit. Um, and I want to know whether Ollie can investigate whether these kits are worth it. It's not another needle, is it? Do you know? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not fucking... No. no it's Come fine. On, you it... don't have to... Look, I'm telling you now. If it involves a needle, you don't have to do a needle. Yeah. Okay? okay? But it probably doesn't. Don't you just have to spit into a jar or something? Spit all jizz. Genuinely, a bit like when you did your taste test of recipe boxes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a useful service. I'd still, I've still never bothered getting one, but if I was going to, I'd get the one you recommended. Yeah. I'd like to know whether you think these DNA tests are actually worth doing. Okay. Because you lived in Denmark for a while, didn't you? I you, did. That the people there assumed you were Danish. Yeah, because of my beard and my blondness. Yeah, exactly. But you're, you're not, are you, as far as you know? I don't think so. Right, so that'd be something to work out, wouldn't it? Like, what do you think your ancestry is? I'd put some money on Scandinavian. But you did, but there's no reason to actually believe that. No. We'll find out on next week's show. Ollie, thank you very much, as ever. Next up, you will meet Eugene. But first, it is time for our record of the week. And I know what you're thinking. Why isn't Sounds of Christmas our record of the week? And the answer to that is it's available on Friday. So it's going to be the record of the week next week. And then we will have an opportunity to remind you again to buy it when you can. Uh, so here's this week's record. It's available right now. It's by Distat, and it's called Kitty Kitty. Enjoy. Big deal maker, orange entertainer, swamp it up, gator. Gang of undertakers, make the new news faker. It is panto season. Uh, If you are an international listener, you'll probably have no idea what that means. Although I would refer you to season three, episode nine of this show, uh, our excellent underrated episode, in my view, Mr. Panto. Um, But what it does mean, and this is all you really need to know, is that all over the UK right now, there are loads of productions opening of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, children's shows, basically. And the biggest is perhaps at the London Palladium. Uh, It stars Dawn French and Julian Clary, Nigel Havers is in it. And it hit the news this week because during a break in rehearsals, two of the cast who are playing the dwarves, uh, Ben Goff and Craig Garner, went next door into Five Guys to get some lunch. And the burger chain had to apologise after their staff allegedly laughed at the actors. Uh, Goff wrote on Twitter, I'm disgusted with the treatment I received from Five Guys on Argyle Street today. The staff were laughing at myself and my colleagues from Snow White because we're short. Do they always laugh at their customers if they have a disability? It's a pretty shocking story, but the timing couldn't have been better because I read it just after I'd interviewed the writer and activist Eugene Grant for this podcast. Now, Eugene has dwarfism and thinks essentially that this attitude that you do see of people mocking other people because they've got dwarfism can perhaps be traced back to the characterisation of dwarves that we see on the big screen and in Panto. In other words, he thinks it might be time to ban Snow White. I started by asking him what his experiences were like growing up with dwarfism in an average height family in Bath. I got bullied quite a lot at school. A lot of the trouble, a lot of the difficulty comes from not only not fitting in, but not fitting into a quite a toxic form of, I want to say toxic masculinity really, which is on show so much if you don't fit into the things to which they ascribe value, mm. then you have no value in that way. Mm. But that's how teenage boys operate. And so in my experience, it was very difficult to live up to those values. And, and if you didn't, then you were cast out from that. And when you were 13 or thereabouts, mm-hmm. Austin Powers came out yep. with Mini-Me. Yep. What impact did that have? I think that's had a lasting impact. Here is a film with a character who is not even a character in his own right. He's a replica of another character who is, you know, a biddable, 
pet. It's like the court dwarves from you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Mm. He's a pet, really. Um, he's hypersexual, hyper-aggressive, can't even speak. And then all the things that come with that, you know, the spectacle of, of violence in the film, you know, the fight that Austin Powers has and the way with Mini-Me and the way that's shot to be entertaining. And you see, you know, Austin Powers smash him in the face with his foot and he flies into a wall and crumples against the wall. And that's for entertainment purposes. And I think it made me uncomfortable at the time. And then as I grew older and I realised just how bad it was, and I realised then as well, like, how it would begin to shape other people's opinions of people who looked like me. So you'd walk, to, you'd walk down the street and someone shout, Mini-Me! But did that happen on a Saturday night when everyone had had a drink or did it happen all the time? It didn't happen all the time. It happened enough for it to be a thing. And this is a film that made you know, $300 million and was up for different awards. And, and people saw this as hilarious and super funny. Mm. But I, didn't, I don't think I internalised that. Like, throughout my teenage years, you know, I went from wanting to be a basketball player, wanting to be the first uh, dwarf person in the NBA. And actually, there's, a, um, there's now a guy who's um, called Jamani Swanson who plays for the Harlem Globetrotters. No. He's got, yeah, num- number nine, my lucky number. And um, he's got achondroplasia, and he's, he's amazing. He's absolutely incredible. You can see this, this wonderful video of him on Instagram where he's walking down the street in New York and he's bouncing the ball. And this young woman thinks she's clever and tries to tackle him. And he, he puts her on her ass, Like he puts the ball through her legs or something like that and she just falls over in her high heels in the middle of the road. So he's now a you know, professional basketball player. But are um, you good at basketball then? I, mean, I, was, to... I was good. I, I, I had game. Because I, um, I, I thought the, the one thing everyone knows about basketball is it really helps if you're tall. I mean, of all the sports. I, I think people who say that don't know much about how basketball is played. So, um, so is it not harder to shoot from a lower position? Um, it is harder, but you can get around that quite easy. But basketball's got different positions. So the smallest of all positions is the point guard. And you're like the playmaker. You're, you'd have the best dribble. You'd be the, you should be the quickest. And you set up the bigger guys. It's almost like you attract attention away from the bigger guys and set them up. The other thing I wanted to be as a, a kid growing up, and this comes just slightly after, the basketball with a skateboarder um i don't know how i thought i'd make money being a professional skateboarder but i guess tony hawks has done just fine and there's a, there was a skateboarder called pancho mola who had the same type of dwarfism echinoplasia that i do and growing up and seeing him in videos um doing the coolest tricks and seeing like kick flips and grinds and he just looked so cool and to see somebody who looked like me doing those things was really quite inspiring and that goes back to you know the point that we were talking about earlier about see how you are represented in in culture and the things you enjoy and actually if you have someone someone like that i took inspiration from someone like panto molo that you know he's a skateboarder and i want to be a skateboarder at the same time you had mini me on our screens you know one had a hugely positive impact and one was hugely negative what, what do you think are the most common misconceptions that people have about people with dwarfism one would be that we're all from some sort of race of dwarves. Um, this comes from fantasy and mythology, and that's not true. 80% of people with dwarfism are born to average-type parents, like I was. Two is that we work primarily, if not solely, in entertainment based on our bodies, whether that's something like pantomime or, or dwarf wrestling or or any sort of spectacle that's based on your body for entertainment. So you don't even need a particular skill set or you know, any charisma or anything like that. You're, you're hired for your body. Mm. Your body is the thing that's funny. Do you, th- you really think people think the majority of people with dwarfism work in entertainment? You, you've encountered people who believe that. I've encountered many people who believe that. I, I don't know if, if the majority of people think that, but I think a lot of people think that. So I've, I've had people in the street um, come up to me and say, you'd make good money doing panto. What, just cold out of nothing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm like, I make good money doing what I do now, two degrees, <laughs> thanks very much. Um, to give you an example, um, recently I was heavily involved with this campaign against this um, uh, dwarf wrestling. This is a company came over from America. In America, they call it midget wrestling. Now, midget is a deeply offensive word to um, people with dwarfs. Actually, just on that, explain why. It comes from, you know, midge, like a gnat or a fly, something you can squash with your thumb, and it's got very strong historical associations with the freak shows and sideshows at which we are paraded and abused. And the vast majority of people with dwarfs find it deeply offensive, and it's nearly always used as an insult. So this company came over to England, and then... Uh, there was huge outcry in the Dwarfism community about them coming over and doing this in you know bars. Um, and when we led a campaign against this, we got three venues to back out. Now, when we did this, there was this huge um, outcry on Twitter, basically people saying, 
um, don't dwarves have a right to work? Mm. Now, the fact that you've said that have just proved my point. So when we say, you know, this feels a stereotype that we only work in entertainment based on our bodies, mm. a venue drops out and people say, oh, but dwarf people need jobs. That just proves the point that you think that's the only job we can do. In those uh, events, because mm. sometimes they're called dwarf tossing as well, or is that a different thing? Is it, that's a different, that's a, it's different and connected. I mean, <laughs> I guess you could argue that we're, we're talking about semantics here. So um, dwarf tossing is a horrific act in which people with dwarfs are thrown for the entertainment of avatar people and we know this leads to copycat attacks so in i can't remember the year it happened but a few years ago a man named martin henderson a guy with dwarfs and was out enjoying his 38th birthday and he's picked up thrown to the floor and paralyzed in a copycat instance they saw someone out and about with dwarfs and, and he decided that they would pick him up and smash him into the pavement and he did, and he was paralysed as a result. Um, I've had friends of mine who men have threatened to throw in bars because they try and they want to replicate this. Um, That's just extraordinary. It's extraordinary to anyone who's never had to encounter that kind of level of violence being mm-hmm. potentially committed against them in an everyday situation, mm-hmm. based entirely on your body. Yeah, I mean, it, is it something that runs through your mind if you go to a bar on a busy street on a Friday night that someone might try and throw you across the room? No, I wouldn't say that, but it would. It entered my mind that depending on different places you go, at a greater or lower risk of violence, certainly abuse, and and then violence comes with that. I mean, and this isn't just me. You know, there's academic studies with dwarf people that show eighty um, percent of us experience verbal abuse, uh, two thirds feel unsafe while out and about, a third have been touched by strangers. People try regularly try to high five me. What's going on there? Do you think in their heads? I think they, they they see the dwarf body as something funny, a spectacle, and they want to be able to tell their friends that they, they're both entertained in that immediate moment, and they probably want to tell their friends that they high-five the dwarf. It, it, it's the kind of people who see someone like me and be like, way, um, and they stick their hand out, and I never oblige them ever. But then they can get aggressive, yeah, you know, and then you have to just, well, you don't have to justify yourself because you don't, you don't owe anyone an explanation, but it's almost like they want one, hmm. and they can get angry quite quickly. And this, this idea of being a spectacle, you've said mm, that a few times. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, of course, I, I don't know what the dictionary definition of a spectacle is, but I mean, the fact that people with dwarfism are in a minority necessarily means that you, you, the human eye can't help but be drawn to, some, to someone who's different and, and notice they're different. It's about how you behave in that scenario, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I always divide it into kind of three different categories. People with dwarfism, we're not very common. You don't see us a lot. Um, and that's part of the problem. And that goes back to representations like mm. me. That's why they're so damaging. Because mm. most average height people meet few, if any, dwarf people in real life. So those representations matter a great deal. Mm. So you've got the, the very curious. And a lot of those are um, small children um, who haven't seen someone who's different before. Um, a lot of those are somebody who's clearly look, like looking at you or interested you clock their eye and they look down to the ground they don't want to be rude or they you know they're, they're, they're interested of course they are we I think all... if I'm being honest that's been mm. me sure I've been that person yeah I've, and that's fine that's absolutely fine um, we're all curious about other people I mean I sit on the tube and look at other people all the time right that's I think that's absolutely fine there's, so there's that there's ignorant now ignorant I think is often misused but for me ignorant means you know not knowing so people who might we talked about the the word midget the m word earlier they're the odd person who might think that's okay to say that now they're not trying to hurt you they're not trying to be the third category which is malicious they just didn't know and then there's the third category which is malicious and i think they're people who set out to abuse or disempower you or make you feel less than and people have to be quite clear as to what falls into what category. So you can't kick off every time a five-year-old says, mummy, look at that little boy with the beard, Mm. you know, and nor can you always kick off with somebody who just didn't know. You know, you have to have a more nuanced reading of your interactions with a tall person. But there are people who are malicious, who are out to hurt you or out to insult you or belittle you. And what about sort of society at large? Because it's Mm. maybe not a surprise that when you go out for a drink, you encounter drunk people who say Mm. horrible things. Mm. But I mean, what about there's just the simple things of getting about, using public transport, using public services? Mm. I mean, is there adequate provision, do you think, for people with dwarfism? Is it considered like the other disabilities perhaps are? It's a difficult one because also I am, you know, 
acorn plagia, which is what I have, is one of the kind of taller forms of dwarfism. So there are people who are much, much smaller who may encounter much more, many more difficulties than me. So you don't um, need adapted furniture? I, or? No, I, I, I do. So we have, I have an adapted car. Okay. Um, I have pedal extensions that on my car, which um, are very expensive to um, have installed. Um, and my, so my partner and I have an adapted car. Um, at home, we don't have anything but but stools um, and any uh, most uh, children of dwarfs I know are become expert climbers you always have these ridiculous things in shops so in shops I always like to use the kick stool I don't really like asking for help um, but I like getting a stool and doing it myself and you always have some staff try and tell you not to on some health and safety thing and the hilarious thing is that I've been using a stool for you know 30 years <laughs> and you do it like once maybe every other friday shift mm. who do you think is better at this and is that sometimes disempowering as well that people actually offer help no 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 not at all so even if um, it's not needed you yeah, know if, if someone no, lowers I, I, a bus I, I, for you I, to get on and you don't need it to be lowered that happens all the time and i actually i like it i think they they've thought about how my needs might be different i think we should we should be careful before we dismiss or criticize other people being considerate I get much more irritated with somebody where you, you ask um, for them to reach something in the supermarket and they look really put out. How do you, if you want the packet of Pringles mm. from the top shelf, mm. have you rehearsed how you ask for that? Um, I asked if I can borrow you. Good, okay, so you can't. So I, I normally look for someone your size yeah. and say, excuse me, can I borrow you? Yeah. Um, and uh, as soon as I say that, you can tell their reaction and sometimes they're like, oh, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe. And then they're like, yeah, sure, mate, what do you need? Yeah. The other thing that you sometimes do is like you go look for like a wrapping paper or something like that, something that's like a metre long, mm. and you just smack the thing off the top shelf and catch it. Okay, that's um, a good tip. Yeah. yeah. So this time of year then, mm. coming up to Christmas, mm. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, yeah. all over the country there are productions mm-hmm. of that panto. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Not great. You know, pantomime is a tradition here in this country. Um, interestingly, it's not a thing in America, not at all. Uh, and there are many kind of various family pantos that people can go to, uh, Aladdin, Jack and the Beanstalk, whatever. I think Snow White and Seven Dwarfs is, is deeply problematic. If you start from the fact that, I mean, let's just look at the characters, I and mean, the characters are ridiculous. You've got seven white men who all live together, who are all so simple that they can be defined by a single state of be- being, like bashful or dopey. Only one of them is clever. And this might sound funny or, or lightweight, but if we think that for many children, this will be their introduction to dwarfism. Mm. And then it goes back to having you know, strangers in the street say, oh, you'd make good money doing panto. I know of parents who've had uh, dwarf children who people have said to them, oh, at least they'll always make money in entertainment. Or they'll never be poor at Christmas time. Mm. You know, what, does that, what does that say to a child, a dwarf child who wants to be a doctor or a lawyer and they're having those kind of expectations put upon them? Okay, Um, but unlike mm. with the dwarf wrestling, Mm, where I mm. understand the argument, people are putting themselves in physical harm Mm. for other people's Mm. entertainment, Mm. that isn't a job that should Mm. exist. Not if you're being objectified in that way. With Panto, Mm -hmm. you know, there are people with dwarfism who are actors, and it is reliable income for them. It is difficult, isn't it, to say to those 80 people who every year are employed every Christmas, no, you can't be in this show. I think it is very difficult, and one of the interest, one of the one of the arguments that always comes up in any of these discussions is, isn't it their choice? And of course, it is their choice. Um, the difficulty is, is that in fueling a stereotype, stereotypes limit the choices of many, many other people who are affected by that stereotype. Because this is what stereotypes do: they limit the ability of everybody else to craft the life they value, to craft their own self-image, to craft the way they want to be identified, that they want to self-define. I suppose, in a way, it's a similar argument to grid girl in Formula One. But it's, it's a role that's based on your body rather than your skills. You know, if you look at the um, actress, um, actor, brilliant, brilliant actor called Lisa Hammond, and she, I can't remember her character's name, Donna, in EastEnders, and she's just stepped down from her role recently. She was being interviewed for a piece in which she was quite critical of these roles, and she described them as warm props because you're hired for your body rather than your skill, charisma. And she's spoken at some length about, you know, the difficulty in trying to get good, decent roles. 
But until you do that, the cycle will just continue. You know, mm. if you look at the, some of the work that Peter Dinklage has had to do to stay away from those those stereotypical belittling roles, and then finally, you know, being the station agent, uh, Game of Thrones. He was an X Men. He's just brought out a new film, My Dinner with Hervé, and that's what's going to change the world, not something like being dopey or dark. How, how do you feel about um, Martin McDonough's stuff? So in Bruges and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing. I mean, there are roles for a character with dwarfism in those, but there are jokes made against their dwarfism within that. Three billboards is a tricky one. Lots of people asked me about three billboards after that came out. And I think, on the one hand, people were up in arms about the, you know, the use of the word midget and, and other things like that. Now, I don't think anyone who went to see that film came away thinking that was a good way to treat someone. Mm. And that's my main concern, is that, you know, are you encouraging negative behaviour or are you just exhibiting it for what it really is? But what I would say is that I also thought his character was totally gratuitous. I didn't. Uh, he didn't need to be there. I don't think he was integral to the plot or anything like that. And so while the abuse he got was realistic, and I don't, and I think it was portrayed in a way that no viewer would then want to imitate, I don't see why that was necessary in the first place. It's also, I'll tell you what I thought watching it, I thought this is the director signalling to us that he's got a kooky sensibility. That's what felt uncomfortable about mm. it to me. It was because people with dwarfism are visually different yeah. it's like a shortcut to saying this is a bit of a kooky weird film exactly I, I just I didn't see what the point was do you know people who are in Snow White the article I wrote that, um, so I wrote an article this time last year um, about pantomime was sparked from a long discussion I had with a lady of Dwarfson at a bus station um, in Victoria bus station we were both getting the megabus up um, north and she was going to go and do panto um, do Snow White for like two months away from her family over Christmas, she can ask me why I was against it. We had this whole it was a debate, really. Um, what were her reasons for being pro? She didn't actually give reasons for being pro as much she tried to give counters to my reasons for being against. So actually, in terms of our discussion, I could see no benefit from what she was saying. She said things like, um, stereotypes don't matter as long as you have the confidence to be yourself. That puts an awful lot of pressure on, on dwarf people to be super confident in order to break a damaging stereotype that limits their confidence in the first place. That's a lot of pressure. So I don't really buy that argument, you know, this whole argument where, oh, if you're, as long as you're just fine with yourself, then negative representations don't matter because you are affected by those representations. You're affected by the way you, you see society sees you, the way people in the streets see you. I, I don't buy that argument for a second. I know as well you want to talk about Benjamin Lay. Who's that? So Benjamin Lay is one of the was one of the first white radical abolitionists um, who had Dwarfson. Um, and his story is only really just beginning to come to light uh, in full, thanks to a new uh, biography by a historian called Marcus Redeker. So an abolitionist of slavery? Of slavery. Uh-huh. Um, so he was uh, born in um, 1682. Uh, he was a Quaker um, and he lived in both England and America. Now, the Quakers became um, very, at the time of Lay's life, uh, many Quakers still owned and traded slaves. They later became very well known for being very vocal abolitionists. But um, uh, during his time, um, many of them owned slaves. And Benjamin Lay was fiercely against this. And he used to do these really dramatic protests um, at Quaker meetings, trying to force people to um, step away from slavery, um, including one of which where um, he uh, went to um, the, the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, um, which is a meeting of all um, the, kind of the most important Quaker meeting in, in Philadelphia. But at the same time, Many of these members were, you know, politicians, really influential, rich people who owned huge amounts of land, had huge power in the state legislature. And he would do protests like he had a hollowed out book and he ran a knife through his book. And in, in the hollowed out part of the book was a um, pouch that he filled with red juice. So it looked like the book was bleeding and, and he'd be picked up because he was so small and carried out of the meeting and thrown outside. Um, another um, protest that he did was um, at a, uh, a fair, a kind of a market in Philadelphia um, in which he set up a, a whole beautiful China, China tea set and uh, people were wondering what he was doing and he smashed the entire tea set and he was protesting about slave labour producing tea and producing sugar. And he was, he was excommunicated from these, these meetings. When I say meetings, meetings is like 
the Quaker form of the church. So it's not, they denied his marriage certificate to a lady called Sarah Lay, who was his wife, who also had Dwarfson. But he was such a vocal campaigner against abolition, against um, slavery, sorry. To me, this guy's a hero. Yeah, but people have never heard of him. You know, people know about Minnie Me and Dopey and Doc, and they don't know about <laughs> like Benjamin Lane. And this guy helped change the world. Yeah. So that's a film you'd like to see. I, I, that's a film I would love to see. I'd like to see Absolutely. that film actually. Yeah, sounds like a good movie. Eugene Grant, well worth a follow, by the way, on Twitter at Mr. Eugene Grant. Uh, and thank you to man fan Ian Hawkins, who's friends with Eugene and got in touch with the show to suggest him as a guest. We are always open to that, as you know. Uh, if you know anyone fascinating, you can even nominate yourself. Uh, do visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, click feedback and suggest away. Uh, right, Alex Fox is up next with an extremely unusual obituary. That's after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Time to talk sex in the foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hey, Ollie. Now, before we get on with the sex stuff, I know you've had some sad news. Well, me and the entire kinky community, unfortunately, we lost a legend of a gentleman called Dave Playpens, who was the... That couldn't have been his real name. (laughs) He was the founder of Playpens Dungeon Furniture. Anyone who has (laughs) been to a kinky fetish club pretty much anywhere in the United Kingdom in the last God knows how many decades will have found themselves strapped to and thwapped over one of Dave's bits of kit. And for he- those who missed the Telegraph obituary, although <laughs> well, I'm sure their readership would be very familiar with the equipment you described, what was the significance of that contribution to the kink world? Well, Dave was incredibly skilled at hand-making some really imaginative bits of kit. He uh, invented these bondage beds with a system where you could flip somebody over while they were tied up. Um, he had these uh, other kind of structures and beds with electric winches so you could suspend spend people from the ceiling. Although I think my favourite bit of kit that he ever invented was a circular frame that you could tie people to called the Wheel of Misfortune. (laughs) I have the best story ever about Dave, though. Sure. I mean, it's competing with a lot in his legacy, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, when he wasn't doing dark and wondrous things in dingy dungeons, Dave was also a real enthusiast about motorsports and motorcycles Uh, and unfortunately many years ago he had an accident where he lost his little finger but he was able to pick it up from the track and when he went to hospital to see if they could attach it and they said no he decided to take it home cook it and eat it. No, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Why? I mean, why not, I suppose? Exactly. He was just that kind of guy. He was like, you know what? There's a, there's a silver lining here. I can do something extraordinary that most people will never get the chance yeah, to do. Yeah, taste that is, what human tastes like. Yeah, taste myself. I mean, I've done that sexually on many an occasion, but I can confidently say that I don't know what my actual flesh tastes like. Yeah. I have pictures on my laptop of Dave's boiled finger. I always wondered why he boiled it and didn't, like, roast it or something. Guess what it tasted like, Ollie? Uh, people always say either bacon or chicken. It was chicken. Yeah, 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 he said it tasted just like chicken. So there you go. There we are. The R.I.P. Dave Playpens. Yeah. Uh, what I love about this show, Alex, is you would not hear that obituary anywhere else and then particularly not into this thing we're about to do. <laughs> it's a question <laughs> of sex, uh, which has been submitted from an anonymous 18-year-old man in England who says... In my short sexually active time, I've experienced a range of quite kinky activities. I like to place myself on the dom end of the spectrum, and recently I met a lovely lady who's a few years older than me, she's 23, and she's also quite a kinky girl herself, more on the sub end of the spectrum. And so far, Alex, they sound a match made in heaven. Pretty much. Um, Not long ago, she told me about one of her biggest fantasies. It was something I had never heard of. She called it Dubcom. Essentially, she says she wants to be drugged by me and then I would inevitably have my way with her. This is really scary to me. However, I'm not completely adverse to it. Mainly, Alex, I want to know how legal it is for me to indulge my partner's biggest fantasy and how we can do it safely. 
Well, there's a lot that I want to say about this, but let's kick off by um, defining this term, dubcon. Mm. Uh, it sounds like some kind of convention for people who are into electronic music, doesn't it? But it's not whatsoever. Um, this phrase actually comes from fan fiction originally, uh-huh. and it stands for dubious consent. Uh, in its original form, it was used to describe stories where, uh, for example, uh, sex pollen had been used. This is... Um, kind of a magical spell or an enchanted flower, all imaginary, obviously, that um, gives off pollen or a miasma or smoke or something, which when inhaled or ingested by the key characters in a piece of fan fiction will cause them to magically be very lustfully attracted to each other. Sounds quite Japanese. Yeah, it, yes, it? there's definitely hentai <laughs> influences here. me for generalising, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this is influenced by hentai and anime, yeah. Uh, but... Um, those kind of dubcon stories, when the uh, lead characters come round from being under the magical powers of this sex pollen, they then go, oh, you know, well, we really enjoyed that, but was it really what we wanted to do? So hence why the consent is dubious. It can also be used to categorise stories where the power relationship between two characters is inherently quite troubling. So, for example, a student or a teacher, a patient and a doctor, a prisoner and a guard, where the story leads you to believe that they are attracted to each other and having consensual sex. But abusing but, a position of authority. Exactly, because yeah. one of them has authority over the other. And I've the seen consent that in porn is a dubious. lot. You know, there's, there's a lot of that. I'm the doctor, you're the patient. I'm the teacher, you're the student. But it's legal and it's apparently consensual. But yeah. it's playing on a power dynamic. There is a difference between role-playing that kind of power dynamic and its existence in real life. But there's also the a huge difference. consent is more than dubious if it's a real-life scenario. But there's also a huge difference between even that level of fantasy and being raped whilst on drugs, isn't there? I mean, there's, it's not possible to consent to that, I suppose, except in the situation that he's describing where someone specifically says, I want you to drug me and have sex with me. Yeah, this term... Dubcon, or dubious consent, has now been expanded and is used by some people to apply to all sorts of scenarios, including those where prior to a situation, two people will sit down and discuss what they want to happen before somebody is then uh, put, say, under the influence of drugs or alcohol or some other scenario where their ability to actively consent is removed. Now, I've got to make it clear, we are on very, very shaky ground here, both legally and in terms of safety. Because even if someone says, I want you to drug me, I want to lose control, and then I want you to have sex with me, it's arguable that it's not really possible to have sex at all when that person's out. Even if they've said in advance, I want it to happen, they can't consent to everything as it's happening because they're not awake. No, exactly. Because their ability to revoke consent has been revoked from them... Yeah the consent is no longer possible. Uh, And that's the stance that the law takes on it as well. Good. I'm glad they've (laughs) got that right. That sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) I actually spoke to one of my favourite people in this world, uh, a specialist in obscenity law. Uh, He works with a lot of sex workers and covers all things kinky when it comes to legislation and and safety. And that is Miles Jackman, the the wonderful Miles Jackman. Uh, And he says... Has he ever eaten his own finger? (laughs) No, but I I think he knew Dave Playpens and I'm sure he would have given him a high or a high four, as the case may be. (laughs) Uh, He told me that the issues are twofold here, really. For a start, there is the risk that if you are using pills or alcohol or any kind of chemicals, either legal or illegal, to incapacitate somebody, then there is always a risk to health. There's a risk that things could go wrong, and we'll chat about that a little bit more in a second. The second issue is this thorny debate about someone's capacity to to provide consent in advance of a situation where they cannot revoke it. Mm-hmm. Now, there are people who do this. They have lots of pre-negotiation, um, but the law doesn't really recognise that kind of nuance. The law views consent, as Miles put it, puts it, as very binary. It's either on or it's off. So if something did go wrong with our listener here and his partner and she changed her mind and worst case scenario, she decided to take action against him legally, Legally, he would not be in a position of security here. This is not really something that I can advise that either of them should proceed with. No, there's also the obvious risk as well. Uh, You know, law aside, 
that you might accidentally end up killing her, not through the the intercourse, but through the drugging. If you don't know what you're doing with the drugs, she could overdose, couldn't she? And that's not something she's consenting to. True. Now, the reality is that people do do this, and the means that they use to drug or intoxicate the other person can range from giving them a small amount of alcohol to consume, so they're just mildly tipsy, all the way up to the abuse of prescription drugs that might usually be used for things like treating insomnia, so their sleeping pills, uh, or to knock somebody out prior to surgery. Uh, Some people also use illegal drugs, so things like nitrous oxide or ketamine. I mean, that again adds another layer of risk here. If you are involving illegal drugs, clue in the name, in your sex life, then you are doing something illegal. Okay, so you've Um, answered his question. He wanted to know how legal it was. Answer is not very, and even the drugs itself is probably illegal. Exactly. But she wants to do this. Let's Uh take him at his word. Therefore, what's a safe way for them to experiment with this? I presume the answer is role play, don't actually do it. Well, before they do anything, I would prompt our listener here to examine what he really wants because there are elements of his email here uh, that make me question whether he is really, really excited about doing this himself, genuinely, or whether he's just trying very, very hard to please his partner. There is a slight age difference here. Mm. She's 23, he's 18. Mm. It's not a huge age difference, but it is a significant one in my experience at that point in your life. The listener says that he hasn't had a huge amount of sexual experience without wanting to sound patronising 18 is pretty young. You have all the time in the world to explore these things. So do so safely and take it slowly. And his confession that he actually finds this very scary suggests to me that it's not really something that he is truly attracted to himself. He's just Mm. trying to be uh, a game partner and be up for anything. But it's absolutely fine to say that something is too much for you. Being a good partner includes expressing honestly when your wish is not to do something with someone. That's a really good point. The question's all about her consent and his position, but actually it's him consenting to the fantasy as well, isn't it? Yeah, so he might not even want to role-play this. It might be a step too far. But if they do both sit down and have a sober, relaxed conversation, ideally outside of a a sexual scenario, because as we've discussed in the past, in the heat of the moment, it's more difficult to have a clear, constructive, honest conversation than it is when uh, when in the the cold light of day, quite frankly. Uh, If they do both chat about it and decide it's something that they would like to play with in a safe manner um, then they can talk about role playing it basically pretending can be almost as good as the real thing here and it's definitely far far safer in terms of the law and physical health Um, but something else that they might want to explore which some professional dominants and dominatrixes use, is the use of erotic hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, He could study the art of trying to induce a trance state within her uh, and then commanding her to do things like lay still. I would advise plenty of reading on this, My guess is that they're not going to reach a stage where our listener genuinely has the ability to put her in a state where she uh, is so far gone that she can't consent. Uh, But that can be a very, very powerful dominant tool against somebody else psychologically and it can be very exciting. So if they want to do something that's still quite at the outer realms of subdom play Hmm. but doesn't involve drugs, illegality Hmm. and risk to to of harm then that might be an adventure that they can have that's just a little bit less full-on that's a great idea because yeah you can under hypnosis actually stop it if you want can't you as a participant at the same time it's role play plus isn't it? any responsible you will think i am exactly any responsible use of hypnosis will give the person under who is under the influence of that hypnotic state the ability to exit it if they wish yes and if you want to uh, come under the influence of alex's amazing answers to your sexual questions what do you need to do with them Head to our website, Modern Man, I hope you know this by now, but it has two N's, .co.uk, and hit feedback. You can give me a name if you want, or you can remain anonymous like this listener. Give me as much detail as you possibly can. If you want to get me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Alex Fox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X. Yeah, but don't send a question actually for next week's show specifically, because it's our Christmas special and uh, tradition dictates that we will be doing our XXXmas special foxhole 
with Ollie Pitt, which Alex, you've subtitled, now bring me some friggy pudding. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, that's better than the feature's going to be, but I look forward to it. <laughs> Let's hope we pull a cracker. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Greta in Hungary, who says, Hi Ollie, I just set you up six months of beer money donations, but from January, as at the moment, I'm quite broke. That's fine, thank you, Greta. Uh, I absolutely love your show. It is how media should be done. You sing it, sister. I've been an Answer Me This listener from the beginning, and that used to be my favourite podcast of all time, but The Modern Man may just have taken over my heart. Uh, I used to live in the UK and have now moved back home to Hungary, but your podcast always takes me back to my UK memories. Uh, Greta, thank you and congratulations. I now pronounce you Manbassador for Hungary. Our music is by Django Django from their self-titled debut album. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.